Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 52 and 53. We'll be looking at the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It's after Psalms and so forth. But before you get to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's some Bibles underneath the the chair rack in front of you, or you can look it up on your device. We're continuing our series through the servant songs of the Lord in the book of Isaiah as a way to look and study and understand that particular part of Scripture, again, written 700 years or more before the time that Christ came into the world. We've looked now at three of those servant songs, and we're trying to tune our hearts to those uh, songs, those messages, and now we're in the fourth of those coming into the close, really, of this series in the next couple of weeks. Last week, as we looked at Isaiah 52 and 53, we said, you know, th- this is the most familiar of these passages to us. It is one that we've probably heard quoted or referenced before in our lives, and we said that's for good reason, because there's, there's so much precision about the description of Jesus, there's so much beauty and power to the description giving here of the servant of the Lord that we know is uh, Christ. And we, we mentioned as well that we're covering really three themes in here. We've covered uh, three different ones with each of the, the four servant uh, songs that we've looked at. Uh, last week we talked about the atoning work of Jesus, the fact that he's got to make payment for us. So he was, we looked at that through a couple of lenses. He's a reconciler. He's a propitiation. We use that big Bible theological term, a payment. He's an advocate. He's an intercessor. He's a justifier, and he includes all who would come uh, to him. He's sprinkling many nations, right? He delights to see many from all the nations come who would surrender uh, to him. His invitation is open in that uh, sense. So we saw that about his atoning work, and then today we're going to focus on the fact that he, that he suffers. And we're going to dive deep into that, and my hope is that as I experienced this week preparing for this message, uh, that we will be struck by what the Lord Jesus has done for us, and it will be transformative for us. And Next week, we'll talk about the fact that he's victorious as well. So if you will, it's the, it's the sort of hard news this week that leads to the beautiful and victorious news uh, next week. So today, I'm going to have us uh, read uh, all of this section of Scripture. I know last week, I took some selected verses of it. But here's what I want you to do as I read and you are reading along silently. Look for the words, the phrases in here that describe the suffering of the servant of the Lord. Maybe physically, maybe emotionally, psychologically, relationally. I've read this passage a a number of times over the years. I've preached from it before, I've spoken from it. Until I slowed down this week and actually looked for all of these phrases, I was never struck in the way that I, that I have been. So do that with me, as you, if you would, as I read, uh, starting in Isaiah 52, uh, verse 13, says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them. They see that which they have not heard. They understand. 
Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then several more verses, again looking for those words that describe his suffering. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like the lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, would you impact us in a fruitful and transformative way today? with a fresh reminder, maybe for some a first reminder of the magnitude, the horrendousness, the brutality, the reality of what the Lord Jesus has suffered on our behalf, that we could be free, that we could have joy, that we could have salvation. Oh Lord, would you do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by way of introduction today, I want to do something that's a little different than the way we normally do things when I tell a story or help us connect in some way with an illustration. And what I want to ask us to do is just read aloud because I looked at these verses, I saw all these words, it's almost 30 different references or distinctive references to suffering that are given to Jesus in this passage And I took a moment yesterday to read it to my wife, Patience, and when I read it aloud, it hit me even more. So we don't usually do this kind of thing, but I want you all to read with me. We're just going to read down through this list I think we've got on the board. 
uh, of the words describing his uh, suffering. James, if you can pull that up back there. Let's read together aloud. Appearance marred, deformed, despised, rejected, sorrowful, grieving, offensive to behold, unesteemed, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, oppressed, afflicted in silence, judged, cut off and isolated, stricken, unjustly killed, buried, crushed by God, grieved by God, anguished, poured out, deemed unrighteous. That's just a bit of it. That's just a bit of it. And if you're like me, just reading through that, weighty words to read as we think about what has been accomplished for us and the beauty of it today. I really want to focus in on this main idea as we receive the impact of those words. And that's this, that as we behold, again, this word is in several of these servant songs of the Lord, behold, you know, look at with intentionality and purpose to receive. Behold, his atonement through suffering, we should do three things. Exalt Jesus, praise Jesus, worship Jesus, however you want to phrase that. Redeem our own struggles in light of Jesus' suffering and anticipate eternal deliverance. And we're going to look at the last one a little bit more really next week, but I'll touch on it this week. As we think about these uh, verses, a couple of things are a challenge to us. One is that we, we struggle to meditate. We, we, don't, we don't like to go into a discouraging place, a sad place. We prefer to be in a joyful and jovial mood. A, a lot of our entertainment through our devices and so forth tries to keep us in sort of a constant state of entertainment and uh, enthusiasm and maybe uh, happiness so that we, we don't have to go to some of those hard places. And, and as we think about Jesus and exalting him because of his suffering, it, it requires that we go to the place of sorrow uh, with him to some degree. And so we, we struggle to really fully exalt Jesus because we don't, we don't want to go to that place. And, and it's a step of faith to go to that place and believe that Jesus is going to meet you in it and me in it and going to bring us to a place of encouragement and actually help us to exalt him. Uh, we forget as well that uh, grace is certainly free, but it definitely isn't cheap. And in our own lives, to the degree that uh, any one of us, myself included, we certainly all have sinful patterns in our lives, especially that we uh, come back to again and again, the worry, the lust, the vanity, the greed, the complaining, the anger, the judgmentalism, the self-sufficiency, the substance addiction, the whatever, those things that we battle with day to day, and we struggle in those moments where we're wrestling. Hopefully we're in a repentant posture. But when we forget, when we forget to walk with the Lord in the face of those temptations, part of that is because we're forgetting what's been paid on our behalf. 
right? If we remembered that at all points, at all times, in each moment in our lives, I think it'd be a lot harder for us to fail to seek God the way that we should and to turn away from Him in the ways that we so often do. So I believe meditating on that suffering work of Christ can help to transform us in a God-glorifying way. That's a big thing. We struggle to exalt Jesus. We we also struggle with redeeming our own uh, struggles, our own suffering. And we kind of live, I think, in a tension here. I'll say a few more words about it in a minute. Between a sort of stoicism where we don't want to acknowledge our own struggles. Where we say, I've got first world problems. I know that. And so I'm not really going to acknowledge them. I'm not going to really bring them to the Lord. To the Lord. And maybe some of us grow, grew up in that mindset. Just keep a stiff upper lip and move on forward. And, and because we do that, we actually miss an opportunity to bring that pain before the Lord. Are most of our problems first world problems? They are, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that they're not painful, that they don't impact us. The rejection of a peer at school because of something in our lives or some stand we take for the gospel, that hurts, that impacts us. Difficulties in the workplace where we can't get over tension or we're struggling with a boss or somebody. Those things are painful and discouraging. The physical ailments we have, the losses we have experienced of loved ones, those are real pain and real difficulty. And when we just brush them aside, then we don't have an opportunity to really bring them to the Lord and say, God, I, I need you in that place. I need your help. So we struggle on that side with our our challenges, our suffering. And then on the flip side, we definitely live in a a cultural moment and at all times we can kind of default this way to a a kind of victim mentality, right? Where everything is somebody else's fault and nothing's ever my fault and I'm always the victim of some other person or some other situation. And we can sit in that place as well, be stuck there and not able to move and bring that to the Lord and say, Lord, would you lift me out? Yes, I have had struggles. Yes, I have had setbacks. Would you help me to rise above that? So we can get stuck on either side of those and maybe on either side with different issues. And then, of course, we always have a hard time keeping an eye towards the eternal deliverance that the Lord gives us, right? As, we're, as we see the struggle of Christ and we face our own struggles, we have a hard time keeping an eye towards the fact that All these things will one day be made right and well. Well, Let's talk for a moment about these aspects as we think about this passage today. The first is that I want to invite us to freshly exalt Jesus in our lives because of his suffering, because of what he's accomplished. You know, it's interesting, you know, we've got a, a cross up there. And, uh, of course, there's, there's nothing wrong uh, in a formal way with having a, a cross with Christ on it. We call it the crucifix, of course, when Christ is, is on it. But there's a, a reason in our tradition we tend to emphasize the emptiness of the cross, the fact that Jesus has arisen, the victory of it, and so forth. And that's a good thing. But our brothers and sisters who maybe are in faith circles where they have the crucifix and have Christ on the cross, they're... They're helped a bit, at least, by the fact that they're reminded a little bit more regularly of what Jesus has done, right? That's not a bad thing to be reminded of that, even if we 
recommend our emphasis over that perspective. So I, I think about it just that way, figuratively, how we're, we, we in some ways aren't reminded of it as we should be. And then when I think about just the, just think about Mark chapter 14 and 15, you don't need to turn there in your Bible, but just the ways that Jesus is predicted in Isaiah 52 and 53 that he uh, receives suffering. Of course, Judas betrays him. Never fun to have somebody that's close to you that you thought was on board with you betray you and then to do it with a kiss. So painful right off the bat. That's one of the first things we see in Mark 14. And Peter, his denial is predicted. Jesus knows that it's coming, but nevertheless, what a painful thing. And Peter affirms that he's never, he would never do that, and yet he does. Jesus says as he's praying in the garden, these words, Mark 14, 34, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. I've had some lonely and sad times of prayer, and you probably have. I haven't said these words about my prayer. My soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. He's accused by the religious leaders. He was spat upon. He was exchanged for a hardened criminal. They preferred to have him released, ironically, whose name means Son of the Father, Barabbas, as Tim Keller's pointed out to us. And then, of course, we know he cries out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's separated from the Lord. So we think about his suffering. I've read these words before, and it's going to take me a few minutes to read them. And it's going to hurt as I read these words from the book Case for Christ by Lee Strobel maybe been a year or two since I've highlighted these for us, and I know for some of you, you've heard these words a few times from me, but every time I read it, it resonates with me, and uh, my goal here is not um, uh, sort of gratuitous violence. My goal is for us to actually receive it, and I'm going to intentionally skip past some parts in light of just the young ones here. Uh, maybe if you want to get a copy of the book, you can decide how much of that needs to be read in your home. But you remember Strobel was the uh, atheist. He rejected Christianity. His wife comes to faith in Christ sort of through a community Bible study. He was a Chicago Tribune or sometimes investigative reporter. And he eventually takes his skepticism towards the gospel and applies it, the investigative reporting skill. And he goes and meets with different people about all different aspects of the gospel and about what Christ has done. This is the chapter where he's going and he's interviewing this particular medical expert, Dr. Methrow, Dr. Methrow, on what actually happened to Jesus on the cross. Initially, I wanted to elicit from Methrow a basic description of the events leading to Jesus' death. So after a time of social chat, I put down my iced tea and shifted in my chair to face him squarely. Could you paint a picture of what happened to Jesus? He cleared his throat. He said it began after the Last Supper. Jesus went with his disciples to the Mount of Olives, specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, if you remember, he prayed all night. Now, during that process, he was anticipating the coming events of the day. Since he knew the amount of suffering he was going to have to endure, he was quite naturally experiencing a great deal of psychological stress. I raised my hand to him. I said, whoa, there, there are skeptics have a field day at that spot. I told him the gospel tells he began to sweat blood at this point. Come on, it's got to be the product of some over, overactive imaginations. Doesn't that call into question the accuracy of the gospel writers? Methrow shook his head. He said, not at all. This is a medical condition known as hematidrosis. 
It's not very common, but it's associated with a high degree of psychological stress. What happens is that severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals in the brain down to the capillaries and the sweat glands. As a result, there's a small amount of bleeding in these glands, and the sweat comes out with blood. We're not talking about a lot of blood, just a very small amount. Chastise a bit. I pressed on, says Strobel. Did he have any other effect on his uh, body? Goes on and describes that, and then he says, tell me, Methrell, what was the flogging like? Methrell's eyes never left me. Quote, Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently were a lot more than that, depending on the mood of the soldier applying the blows. The soldier would use a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them. Then the whip would strike the flesh. These balls would cause deep bruises or contusions, which would open, break open with further blows. The whip had pieces of sharp bone in as well that would cut the flesh severely and all. Skip the rest of that for you all to meditate on. What about the cross, he says to Methrell and asks him to explain it. Said he began to unpack these issues. What happened when he arrived at the site of the crucifixion, I asked. He would have been laid down, Methrell said. His hands would have been nailed to outstretched position to the horizontal beam. The cross bar is called the patabulum which at this stage was quite separate from the vertical beam, which was permanent, set in the ground. I was having trouble visualizing this, and so I needed more details. Nailed, nailed with what? Nailed where? The Romans used spikes, Methrell said, that were five to six inches long and tapered in a sharp point. They were driven through his wrist. Hold it, I interrupted. I thought that they pierced the palms. That's what the paintings show. In fact, it's become the standard symbol of the crucifixion. Through the wrist, Methrell repeated. It was a solid position which would lock the hand. If the nails had been driven through the palms, the weight would have caused the skin to tear and he would have fallen off the cross. Then to close, he describes the actual process of Christ giving his life for you and me. So as once the person is hanging in the vertical position, the crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and diaphragm put the chest into an inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, the individual must push up on his feet so the tension on the muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the bones. After managing to exhale, the person would be able to relax down and take another breath again. Again, he'd have to push himself up, scraping against the cross again and again. And again, and you get the picture of what our Savior did for us. These are things that were predicted by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. And as I think about this today and receive it, one thing it does for me is it just obliterates any sort of prosperity gospel, prosperity, health and wealth message that the culture or other Christians would feed into my life as I read what our Savior did and what he accomplished for us. And it reminds me that our suffering through what Christ has done has purpose. And that's really hard for us to believe in our world today. 
Again, it's real easy for some of us to dismiss it, say, well, I don't, I don't have any suffering. I, I think it's a better place for us to acknowledge there are things that have pained me. There's things that have disappointed me. There's things that are impacted me. Maybe they were from your youth. Maybe they're up to today. And to bring those things to our Lord and Savior so that he can meet and minister to us. I don't have a lot of time uh, left today, but if you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, I think it describes a little bit of the way that this can transform us. Of course, it, it helps us, and many of you know I've shared before uh, in a sermon series that I did a couple of years ago after I had some uh, cardiac issues, and I've, I've shared before about my experience there lying on that medical uh, table with uh, professionals running around uh, trying to rescue me and get my uh, heart activity going back because of a, a collapsed uh, vessel uh, in my heart and, and, and how traumatic that was and how painful it was, some of the things they had to do to try to get me back going. And yet as I reflect upon that, I always think about the fact that those 15 or 16 medical people that ran into the room and all started working, they were, they were every single one of them trying to help me. And even as they hurt me, they were trying to remedy what was wrong with me. And it makes me think about what Jesus must have experienced, or anyone, of course, who suffers pain and agony for their faith or, or at the hands of somebody who would torture them or persecute them as we're on this day of the persecuted church. But as I think about the Savior, what it, what it was like, what it is like for somebody to hurt you that way, right, maliciously, and for uh, vengeance or pain or their own delight instead of res trying to rescue you and help you. First Peter speaks about how this can be transformative for us. First Peter chapter 2, really the whole book is a book that ties back to suffering. So if you want to read a book in scripture, uh, other than of course Job in the Old Testament that relates to suffering, this is certainly a good place to go. Starts in verse 19, it says, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it to you when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. Suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. And then it describes his suffering for us in verse 25. It says, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's a picture of how you and I can walk through some of the suffering that we are enduring and facing in a way that's redemptive, in a way that redeems those things. And certainly the series I preached a few years ago on some, reflecting on some of my own struggles, Don't Waste Your Struggles, I'd encourage you to listen to that. Uh, if, you, if you haven't, if you weren't here part of our church at that time, or it's been a while and you're thinking about how to redeem struggles, Timothy Keller has a, a great book by the title Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Uh, that would be a great help to you as you think through whatever struggles you're facing. And in all of this, the beautiful thing about the gospel, as I close, is that we're invited, even as we walk through those painful sections of this book that I read for us, 
And as we read those words on the screen about what Jesus has done for us, ultimately the beautiful thing is that we, we mourn, we're sorrowful about what has happened to Christ, we're overcome, we exalt him because of what he's done, and then we seek to bring that into our own journey of struggling, but ultimately we're lifted up. We're exalted as we see that Jesus is exalted. He comes through the suffering and overcomes the suffering and uses, in fact, the suffering for the victory that we see in Isaiah 52 and 53. We're going to talk about that more next week. Certainly this week, I, I want us to sit, even though it's painful, even though it's a little discouraging, in what Jesus has done for us in his suffering. But I didn't want to leave you today without that hope in mind, that vision that uh, ultimately we have a heavenly and an eternal hope and anticipation that we look for. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that you would uh, take these words today that uh, you have led me to share, and we ask that you would impress them on our souls. Oh, Lord, would you give us greater apprehension uh, of what has been accomplished for us? Oh, Lord, help us not to take those things uh, flippantly, that have been done for us by Christ. Help us to receive them and delight to walk with our Savior because he's loved us so well. We want to love him back and that that would be transformative for how we work during the week in our schoolwork or in our workplace. That'd be transformative for how we care and, and live with one another as a husband and wife. That would be transformative for our friendships. That would shape dramatically our involvement in the church and in Christian community. It would direct us to a more holy living in those areas where we struggle. And Lord, that you would lead us in your path as we follow you, our suffering servant. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.